Betsy Sherman is the executive director at Arrowhead, just outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And Arrowhead is important because... This is the site where Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. Having said that, he'd already started his sixth novel when he moved in here. But in the meantime, in the time between his um, coming to the Berkshires in the summer of 1850, and arriving here in October, he'd met Hawthorne, and they'd had all these wonderful metaphysical conversations, and Hawthorne told him to write the story that was in his heart. And when Melville sat down to write, he took his old book apart, and when you read Moby Dick, it reads like two books. It's, you know, the part about the stations and the harpoons and whaling, and then there's the story. It's kind of like the harpooning and the whales are plonked right in the middle, right? Yes, but I think he did it for a reason. If you believe in Nathaniel Philbrick, and why wouldn't I? Um, he, he wrote a book called Why Read Moby Dick. Okay. Very, very tiny little thing. But yeah. um, he says that Melville included those parts because he wanted to slow down the action. He wanted mm -hmm. people to consider what he had written. And if you just read the story Palmel without these intervening pieces, you get a great adventure story. But mm. Melville's goal was bigger than that. He was writing, he was putting everything he knew about human nature on the page. Mm. He was writing the great novel about humanity. Um, so he wanted you to, first of all, perhaps experience a, a period of time. He wanted to give this sense of time passing, or he wanted to ground it in reality, let's say. I think both. Or, I think he was yes, he was grounding it in the actual life of a of a whaler, giving you all this information about the harpoons and the cetacean part. He already knew that cetaceans were not fish; they were mammals. But mm. he included it anyway. But I think he was really trying to slow down the action and get people to think about what had happened and what was going to happen, okay. where the story was going. So, in other words, he was doing that on the page. Yes, absolutely. As opposed to. Uh, reader might do is just sort of sit there and ruminate. He was actually putting yes. that. Let's calm down here and think. And where's the story going? At the end of the day, what am I trying to say here? And when he finished, when he sent the piece off to Great Britain to be published, he didn't, hadn't finished the epilogue yet. Oh, yes. Um, they went ahead and published it. They published it, it and yeah. nobody understood it. Well, they didn't understand the story anyway, but they didn't understand who's telling the story. Everybody's mm -hmm. dead. But he did a very odd thing. He sent it off, but then he's in New York looking to find a publisher here. He bought some seeds for Arrowhead, vegetables and so I forth, see. for the garden, for, the, for his fields. Yeah. And I think that this whole period of time, he was ruminating. He was trying to figure out how to wrap this all up. The epilogue is very short, and yet it wraps everything up perfectly, and, and the whole thing just ends and begins again, because as an orphan, Ishmael survives to tell the story, but to go on and live his life. But nobody else does. So he wrote the book here mm -hmm. at Arrowhead, and it bombed. Completely. And that's, that's tragic. It's tragic. He sold about 500 copies of the 2000 that were published. More than, more than tragic, the fact that nobody really appreciated was the fact that he then owed the publisher money. Yeah. They put him in debt. Harper's. Yes, because... Yeah. They only paid the author once the publishing of the book had been paid for, and he didn't sell enough copies to do that. Yeah, to cover the costs. To cover the yeah. costs and, and actually make some money. What's curious, though, is that even though there were only 500 copies out there, 561 if you count the ones that were saved, people read it. If you read about Eleanor, his granddaughter, in the 20th century, 
people have read this book, and certainly they're not Melville scholars. They may be astute people, but they're not. There was no such thing then as a Melville scholar, really. No. There were a few. Raymond Weaver, who who helped publish Billy Budd, was certainly among them. But there were, you know, that was in the twenties. In the twenties, yeah. yeah. But there were a nascent group of people who really got this book. They were very small, but they were there. So you had his champions, but it never gained no, any popularity. No, and of course, because there were very few copies out there, you know. And there was a could, fire, too, wasn't there? There was a fire at Harper's, and that's why all the... They published 2,000. He sold about 500, and then at, with the fire, they lost all but 61 copies of the rest of them. So this makes the, the book, the first edition, that much more valuable because of the scarcity. Right. And of course, if you get a British version, it has no epilogue. Right, <laughs> so right. if you find one of those, let me know. <laughs> you, now, do you have actual uh, first editions here? We have here? a first edition, yes. We are not a repository of a lot of Melvilleana for a couple really good reasons. Uh, by the time Arrowhead was recognized as a house museum, Melville had been dead for almost 100 years. So a lot of the things were given away. His wife, the first path, she gave 500 books to the New York Public Library right after his death. His and own personal library? His own personal library. Right. And over the years, of course, things got distributed to, to the uh, Berkshire Athenaeum, which is here in Pittsfield. has a wonderful Melville, Melville room. Mm-hmm. If you haven't visited it, you should. That's close Beautiful. by? Yes, and they have a lot of the family portraits. They have his, his scrimshaw collection. They have first editions. And then Harvard has a, a large cohort of of books and and publications and so forth. For us, as a house museum, we don't have the conditions that would allow us to have a huge collection of those things anyway. The family's been generous. They've given us enough pieces of furniture and photographs and documents that allow us to tell the story. Well, plus you've got the, the view, and, uh, the view you know, of the mountain. At the end of the day, yes. we have the house which, yeah. and his study, which looks very much like it, as it did when he was here. And out the window is the, the mountain. Yeah. So the reason to come here is is to what? Breathe the same air that he breathed? Uh, Some people do that. What What is it that, uh, um, why? Well, it's very interesting. After six years of being here, um, there's something magic about this place. It really has a magical air. The Berkshires as a whole have a magical air. Mm-hmm. There are people, people have been coming here for 200 years mm-hmm. for the beauty of the countryside, for the pure water, for the clean air, and for inspiration. I mean, if you think of all the musicians and writers and mm. artists who've passed through here, there it has to be a reason why this is sort of a nexus of creativity and and um, mm-hmm. exploration. But, but here, here, particularly, here particularly, what is it? I fully believe that he wrote the first American, first twentieth century novel. I think he was a hundred years ahead of the time. If he had written this book in the in the nineteen twenties or thirties, he would have, you know, the great Southern writers. He would have been compared with them. His use of language is just so amazing. Mm, Shakespearean. Mm. And it is. Well, of course, he read the entire works of Shakespeare before he ever wrote a word of Moby Dick. Yeah. He found a large print volu- you know, set of volumes and read the entire thing. He had clearly had an eidetic memory. He, I don't think he ever forgot anything he read because he pulls it all in. You couldn't research all this and pull it all into a book yeah. in seven months. So he's, again, it's, uh, it's being where he created. So being is sort of at the place of creation that's Yes, I think that's part of it, but I really believe that this this book... Yeah, but the book isn't the house. The book's not the house, but here, here where he wrote it, I think people do get inspired. We've had Mm. writers come, we've had students come. I've seen students burst into tears here, just Mm. looking at that mountain. Because for him, by the time he wrote the book, the mountain was no longer, oh, I see a whale on the mountain. It was, I think, I 
truly believe that it was a touchstone that allowed him to, liberated him to write this book. That he, he had a veranda just sort of made so that he could... The piazza? piazza oh, yes. Yeah, and yes. the stories. The yeah. pi- and, well, and the piazza, when he built it, the neighbors said, it's on the wrong side of the building, yeah. it's on the north side. Yeah. And the family all said, well, in Lansingburg, we have this wonderful, you know, veranda where everybody, all 20 of us can sit. What is this? He didn't build it for them. No. He built it for himself. Because I truly believe that this, looking at that mountain, transported him. And it took him to the time when he was free, the time when he had no worries, a time when life was just day to day. Here he was responsible for so many people. You know, he left school when he was 13. It was 7th or 8th grade education, basically. No ability to support uh, a family, let alone his mother and four unmarried sisters. And he so was left with all this. Do, is there a great life, by the way? Is there the, the, a best biography, in your opinion? The most complete biography is by Herschel Parker. Uh, that's two volumes and very, very intimate detail. What I tell people is I don't think that Melville ever, ever took an undocumented breath in Parker's view. But um, <laughs> there really is not another one. I think Andy Delbanco's is the only one that's still being published. And that's a problem because... You get his works, but you don't get the piece of it that tells you why he wrote the things he did, where, the, where all this came from. Right. And if you read White Jacket, he never wrote far from what he knew. Yeah, the whole whaling thing was based on his experience. That's right. right. I mean, you know, Redburn, White Jacket, they were all about where he'd been and what he'd seen. Yeah. You know, he says when he came home from the Navy, he threw his jacket, white jacket into the ocean, into the harbor. Um, and that book, that book changed American history in that he wrote about so many floggings that when he came back, people read the book. It was popular. And um, the American Congress uh, outlawed floggings on naval ships because of it. That's Dickensian, isn't it? It is. It is. There's so much to this man's life that should be shared. And without a a really good... Not that the biographies that are out there aren't good. It's that they are not necessarily available. His life is also... There's a real sadness to it. Oh, it's terrible. It's a terrible life. It's a a tragedy when you also think... It is Shakespearean in a sense. Because he's he's written what later came to be acknowledged as the greatest American novel. And yet he quit writing because he didn't get acknowledgement and he felt a failure. He didn't get acknowledgement, but he also didn't get paid. He is here with all these people dependent on him, a wife, four small children, a mother, three unmarried sisters. And his mother, of course, was raised with expectations. She was very, her family was very wealthy. She was the part of the Dutch, uh, one of the last of the wealthy Dutch in the Hudson Valley. And so she was raised with, with, actually with slaves. Her family owned slaves. Uh, she was raised as a lady, she taught all the graces, she could play the piano, speak French, all the wonderful things that a lady's supposed to know. And she married Alan Melville, who was quite, quite handsome, and quite, I'm sure, charming, who went bankrupt. So there is Maria, with uh, when he died two years later, with eight children under the age of 17, no money, no hope of money, $50,000 in debt, and brothers who say, sorry, we can't help you. And by the way, we're not going to settle your mother. Their mother died the same year. We're not going to settle mom's mother's uh, estate. And under Dutch law, she could have inherited equally because the creditors will take the money. But really what they wanted to do, they built a building in Albany with sort of a monument to themselves. The two brothers. The two brothers. The brothers of Melba's mother. mother. Yes. 
What, so, what building is that, by the it's way? It's gone. It was oh, there for about 100 years. Okay. I give her great credit. When families in, in this much distress would break apart and the children would go to work farms, and mm-hmm. she kept the family together. And well, how did all that affect But uh, Herman, well, Herman was taken out of school. He was expected to work. He was a wanderer. He was his his father when he was quite young. They were really worried about him. They thought he was sort of cute, but not too bright. And so he grew up, but he you know, he went whaling and he's sailing and he had all these wonderful adventures. But his brother Gansford, the eldest brother, the eldest child, was the one with the education. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the family Maria, and he also. Very interestingly enough, he looked like a Melville, Gansford did. He had a long, patrician face. Herman looked like the Dutch. Mm. He was big, you know, he was a handsome man, but he was this big, broad-shouldered guy. Like a whaler. Like a whaler. And Gansford was the patrician, well-spoken, um, had a career as a political speaker. Political speaker, what's that uh, Well, he would write political oh. speeches. Oh, he'd be you know, a two or three. Writer. Yes, but, but he, he could also them give well. them. Yes. Okay. And the curious thing is that later people would say, well, you know, what he said, basically he didn't say much, but it was beautifully said. Uh-huh. And he could do it for two or three hours. So the writing runs in the family. So the writing, that piece of it runs in the family. But, right. you know, Herman was a completely different person, and when Gansford died, all of it, everything Everything that was on Gansford's shoulders devolved onto Herman's, and he was yeah. not prepared to take care of it. So, just in terms of what the literary tourist would get here, just in summary, there's inspiration mm-hmm. for sure. It sounds to me too like ho- hopefully what it would do is light a little fire of curiosity under underneath the visitor to explore this man's tragic but important life. Not um, to mention the, the actual novel the itself. The actual novel. Yeah. Well, and his other novels. I mean, Billy Budd is, is just this classic example of good and evil. But Melville was always writing about that in some way. And justice. And justice. Yeah. Yes, yes. The first few books truly had real social justice issues, mm-hmm. which the readers of 1847 didn't pick up on. They read them as travel logs. These were about places that no, that they would never see, that they could never hope to go to. And he had a real story. Unlike the military and the missionaries who were trying to change the uh, islanders, Melville just appreciated them. He thought yeah. their life, lives were almost Accepted perfect. Yeah. Mm. So when we do the tour, one of the reasons I think that you like the tour is because our emphasis here is not on the chair tour, this chair, that chair, this couch, that sofa, or on all the books you wrote. Although, you know, anybody who gives a tour can discuss them. The real point of the tour is the humanities tour. How mm. does man, why he moved here, how he lived here, what he did for this place and what it did to him. And where is this place? Where is this place? We're at Arrowhead. And Arrowhead is? 780 Holmes Road in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, 130 miles from the ocean. It's located sort of in between uh, Springfield and Albany in the Berkshires. Yes. Yes, the Berkshires, that's the definition of the Berkshires. Okay. Mass border to the Hampshire-Hamden County line. Anything else you need to say? No, I just hope that people come and, and experience this very special place. Thanks so much for telling us about it. Not at all. I've been speaking with Betsy Sherman, who is the executive director of Arrowhead, just outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Thanks again. Thank you.